0: Well, Proverbs says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. We all know this. We hope for something, we long for it, we expect something, and it doesn't come or doesn't come soon enough, and our hearts are groaning, hurting, they're reeling. In some seasons of life, under certain circumstances, hope isn't just deferred or delayed, Hope is crushed. It's all but dead. Hopelessness. Some words are their own best definition. Hopeless. Without hope. No chance. No help. Can you think of times like that in your life? Hopeless seasons and circumstances. Maybe you're in one right now. You'd say, this thing feels hopeless it's often in these darkest days when God shows up and he shines brightly and works powerfully and draws near intimately not always it's in his timing his plan is mysterious we often wait much longer than we had wished but frequently in the Bible And also in our own experience, we know it to be true. God seems to love to show up when circumstances are the darkest so that he might shine all the brighter. He seems to love to move mountains, not when they're little or average, but he loves to move mountains that seem massive and insurmountable. But until then, until he shows up and works wonders with this or that problem, the questions that should be before us are these. What do we expect? If hope deferred makes the heart sick, what is it we set our hope upon? What can we expect in this world? What can we expect from our God? Well, these are the themes and questions that are taken up in the first chapter of 1 Samuel. If you would, turn there in your Bibles, 1 Samuel. We'll actually cover a chapter and a half today, all the way from verse 1 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 11. It's against a backdrop of darkness that we'll see God's work from a womb to the world. God's work from the womb, a womb, to the world. That title may not make total sense yet, but I believe it will by the end of the message. We've got 30-some verses ahead of us this morning. I'd like to break this chapter in a half into nine sections, and we'll read each section when we get to it. Some sections will take longer than others. Some will be longer than others. But these headings that I'm about to walk us through that you have there in the back of your bulletin on the sermon notes page, these headings will give us some hooks to hang things on as we walk through these verses. Here's the first one. You have a barren woman in a barren nation. A barren woman in a barren nation is how the book of 1 Samuel begins. We see it in these first three verses. There was a certain man of Ramatham Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeraham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. And Peninah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Well, the most apparent problem presented to us in these early verses is this family. You've got one husband, two wives, It says, Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Hannah's barrenness, as you probably know, occupies the next chapter and a half of 1 Samuel. It's remarkably personal. Her problems and her prayers are relayed to us with unusually intimate detail. But the problem that's introduced to us here in 1 Samuel at the beginning is not just private, it's not just personal. It's not just one lady's dilemma. Hannah's barrenness, as I said last week, represents so much. The whole nation of Israel is barren, spiritually speaking, at this point in time. You can't help but hear that background as this begins with a story, yes, focused on one family, one lady, her barrenness, Israel itself is dead and And that's not a leap. It's not a leap for us to connect Hannah's barrenness with the nation of Israel's barrenness at the same time. You get a hint in verse 3 that there's a foreshadow. A hint of a foreshadow. The end of verse 3, In Shiloh there were two sons of Eli. Hophni and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. Now, the first time you read 1 Samuel, you wouldn't know that's a foreshadow. We find out in chapter 2, we'll see this next week, that Hophni and Phinehas are wicked. They steal from the sacrifices of God to fill their bellies to the gullet. Their father, the high priest, he doesn't discipline them really. He confronts, but just barely. This is the spiritual leadership of the nation. Abuse, mismanagement, lack of boldness and courage. So, reading 1 Samuel a second or third or fourth time, you're supposed to know those details. That's how Old Testament history was written. It was written with foreshadows, and it's meant to be reread and reread. When we read these opening verses a second, third, fourth time of reading the whole book, then what looks like just factual, unimportant detail Eli's sons, Hophne and Phinehas, were priests in those days. Instead, these are dark clouds upon the land. Reminding us, these words are reminding us of the spiritual condition of the nation and all the stories that came before in the Bible. The last story was Judges. It's not the last book, but the last chronology is Judges. And Judges ended chapter 21, verse 25, describing those days. In those days, there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's not just the ending of the book of, of, of Judges, it's it's repeated towards the end. It becomes this chorus. No king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But back to Hannah. Hannah's barrenness, the beginning of chapter one, also raises the question about blessing. Remember blessing from last week? God promised to Abraham a people a multitude of people numbering as many as the stars, as many as the sands of the sea, and that people would be in the land, a nation, and and be blessed. Deuteronomy 7 added this to the blessing, that there will not be any barren among you. Hannah's barren. Where's the blessing? What of God's promises of old? And on the other hand, Hannah's barrenness should also bring to mind some old stories that came before, like Sarah, Abraham's wife, who was barren. She was barren until the Lord miraculously gave her Isaac very late in life. Isaac married Rebekah. And she was barren until the Lord gave her Jacob and Esau. Jacob married Rachel. And Rachel was barren until the Lord gave her Joseph much later on. the time of Judges, you have Samson. His mom was barren until an angel showed up and told her that she would have a son and he would be the Lord's and he would rescue rescue God's people. He ruled for 20 years or so. Not perfectly, not even really well in some ways, but he did do much of what the Lord told him to do and what the Lord planned for him. So each of these godly women, these barren godly women, they, they share in Hannah's plight, and God answered them. God worked, God intervened. He showed up. Can he do the same for Hannah? Could he do the same for the nation? Will he do something great again? The family doesn't seem all that promising, this family of Elkanah and a barren Hannah. First and Second Samuel will go on to give us stories of mighty men, kings and prophets and priests and judges. It will go on to tell the stories of mighty events, wars and inaugurations and, and political maneuvering. These books are about the movers and shakers of the land, the power people, and the events of the headlines on the front page of Israel Times or whatever. But First Samuel begins with something very different. One little family from the countryside. Can God do something with them? It looks like unimportant detail, needless background, but, but look at verse 1. It's actually rich with significance. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim. Ever heard of Ramathaim Zophim? No? I didn't suspect That's the point. It's a nowhere place. It's in the hill country. That's why no one's ever heard of it. Ever heard of Wyandotte? That's where I was born, from Wyandotte. I don't tell people that. Well, I don't really tell them from Detroit either these days because that's not going so well. But that's another story. At least they know where Detroit is. They've heard of it before. Ever heard of Ramatham Zophim, folks? No, you haven't. And that shows us these are not the movers and shakers of Israel. These are backwaters, folks. There's a certain man, the husband of Hannah, named Elkanah. Who's that? We're told in verse 1, he's the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf. And who are they? No one. I said last week, genealogies in the Bible are often very important because they tell us a who's who. Here's a genealogy that's the opposite. It's a know who. No no one's it? No one. And that's exactly the point. It's sort of a, a reverse purpose of a genealogy. Jeraham, Alu, Elihu, these guys, the names are mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, but these specific guys aren't mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, and Tohu isn't found anywhere else in the Bible. He might be one of the Guys whose kids eventually discovered tofu. I don't know. That's not a good thing. But the beginning of 1 Samuel is remarkable for being unremarkable. That's the point. It's not a poor family, but it's not a power family. It's not a famous one. They're a faithful family, but they're not religious leaders in any way. They're nobodies from nowhere. And if God is going to write the ship right now in this book, at this time, he's going to have to pull a rabbit out of the hat. He just might. Hannah's woes are private and personal, but they are symbolic of the whole nation's woes. What Hannah needs is life, and so does the nation of Israel. What Hannah needs is God to intervene and work, and, and, and so does the nation of Israel. So what will he do? That's the question. What, what what will he do? Has he forgotten? Does he see? Does he know? Does he care? Secondly, we turn inside this home to an awkward home life. We saw a barren woman, a barren nation. A look inside this home, it's an awkward home life. Verses 4 and 5 will start there. It says, On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he'd give portions to Penina, his wife, and all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. Hannah was probably the first wife of Elkanah. It was not uncommon in those days for a a man to have a wife. And if she was barren, then he would add to the collection, you could say. Let's talk about that. What about this whole thing of two wives? There's a lot of it in the Old Testament, you probably know. A lot of it in Utah and a lot of it in the, in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's never explicitly condemned or forbidden as much as we would like for it to be. But you sure get the picture from reading Genesis 2 that God's intentions from the beginning was one man, one woman, becoming one flesh. He didn't make Adam and Eve an Eve, And Eve 2 or 3 or 4. No, it, it's, it seems like it's one man, one woman. You also see in the descriptions of polygamy in the Old Testament that it seems like the emphasis is put on... Oh, What's wrong? What's broken? What's complicated and difficult about this situation? The descriptions of polygamy in the Old Testament are never painted with beautiful hues like you see with the one-man, one-woman marriage of Song of Solomon, for instance. So we'll see that play out here in 1 Samuel. The polygamy isn't outrightly condemned, but it's described in a way that highlights the complexity and maybe even brokenness of this relationship this home you have an awkward dinner scene in verse 5 a dinner scene it's really not a dinner scene it's no ordinary meal this is in shiloh it's about 20 miles away from home it's where the tabernacle is this is a meal that's a part of it says worship and sacrifice verse 3 this is one of those memorial feasts that god gave israel in the old testament and commanded them to observe and he commanded that they would be celebrations they were commanded to rejoice as they did this, Deuteronomy 12 says. And yet, the difficulty of this home, and this situation, Hannah's bareness is undeniable. Verse 4, Elkanah would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion. Probably not two plates worth. That might be offensive to a woman. Here you go. I think you can eat all this. You probably don't want to say that. No, not two full servings, but the best cut, the the prime part, maybe even a little bit extra. It's because he loved her and because he, he pitied her in her barrenness. That's awkward. You can imagine that scenario played out at the table. Hannah knows what he's doing. She knows she got a prime cut, and a little bit extra. Yes, because he loves her, also because she's barren. It's a symbol of her barrenness. And Penina knows what's going on here. She knows that even though she has all these sons and daughters, she's second fiddle in the marriage. So what does Penina do? She taunts and ridicules Hannah's barrenness. Look at verse 6. Her rival used to provoke her grievous, grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. This isn't just some sort of foot and mouth kind of moment, these aren't just insensitive or accidental. Offenses about Hannah's barrenness. This is calculated cruelty. You can imagine it, right? The plates are being served, and she says, All these mouths to feed. You know what that's like, Hannah? Oops, I'm sorry, you don't. Oh man, all these kids driving me crazy today, you know. Oh, sorry, I forgot. What are you going to give thanks for this year at the feast, Hannah? I'm going to thank the Lord for all these kids. So the feast is actually a a way in which the problems of the marriage and, and Hannah's barrenness are highlighted and elevated. You've got the awkward polygamous marriage. You've got this vicious other wife whose womb seems to be blessed. Who knows why? And it went on year by year, feast after feast, and Hannah wept and didn't eat. Maybe Elkanah, the husband, will be of help. We see in verse 8, he's sympathetic, but he's not exactly delicate. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? And then here's the misstep. Am I not more to you than ten sons? Uh, If you're newly married and you start to try to have kids and and can't, you don't want to say that to your wife. You don't want to say, You don't need kids. You got me. You You get more time with me without kids. It's all right. Don't worry. Oh, O'Connor's heart is probably in somewhere the right spot, but it's very clumsy, and no doubt this adds to Hannah's sadness and her feeling of helplessness and her desperation and her aloneness. Her husband doesn't fully understand. She's in this alone. It just shows all the more how much it seems hopeless without the Lord. You see in verse 9 that... She stays at the table for the meal only as long as she has to out of politeness. As soon as everyone had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. She left. Not out of bitterness or anger or simply just to get out of there because she can't take it anymore, but she rose to pray. So thirdly, we see a broken yet fervent prayer. A broken yet fervent prayer. After they'd eaten and drunk, Hannah rose And no razor shall touch his head. Her prayer actually looks back to the days when God's people were enslaved in Egypt. In the book of Exodus. When she says, look on the affliction of your servant in verse 11, she's pointing backwards or making an echo of what came before. Back in Exodus, so often, it's described like this, God saw the affliction of his people. Or they praise him because God saw the affliction of his people. God, you saw the affliction of your people. It's all over the place. And Hannah prays. Now, with God's people no longer wandering in the desert, they're in the promised land, yes, but it's almost like they're in need of a whole new exodus, a whole new rescue. There's a whole new bondage and slavery. They have their own problem of barrenness. So again, Hannah's referring, yes, to her own problem of barrenness, but she's tying her problem into the identity of God's people, past and present, and essentially she's saying, God, it's time for you to act. It's time for you to work. It's time for you to intervene once again. Her prayer is humble. She addresses the Lord as Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of heaven. We'll see why that's significant later on. She refers only to herself as your servant, and she says that three times, your servant, your servant. And she humbly asks of the Lord to look on her affliction, to remember her, to not forget your servant, but to give your servant a son. She asks, and year after year she asks. Philippians 4, 6 tells us in the New Testament we not to be anxious about anything, but instead... With prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we should let our requests be made known to God. We're to go to him. We're to ask. The Lord is glorified in this. And really, her prayer, keep this in mind, signifies what's already been stated by the narrator of 1 Samuel. You see, in verse 5 and verse 6, it was already happening earlier, verse 3 as well. Uh, Verse 2, rather. It says the Lord had closed her womb. The Lord had closed her womb. Only the Lord can open it. She's asking God to do what only God can do. So her prayer signifies something about God's sovereignty, that he's in control. He's in this. He knows of it. He's behind it, and he can change it. She also has something in her prayer... Because she's asking him, and like she's asking him, she, she, she assumes God's goodness. She assumes God's wisdom. God's sovereignty and goodness and wisdom are like a perfect triangle. They are a, a rock bed for faithful sufferers. God must be sovereign and good and wise. If he's not one of those, why pray? And if he is all of those, we must pray. He's glorified when we ask. He's glorified when we trust. And he's glorified when we place his purposes and plans over our wants and desires and perspective and wisdom. Jesus prayed to his father like this. He said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You say, well, Hannah didn't do that, though. She just asked, and she kept asking. Yes, she did. But notice Hannah's vow. Her vow indicates just how Godward and God-centered her aim in prayer really is. She said, halfway through verse 11, If you'll give me a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. He'll be a Nazarite, that's what that means. Nazarites couldn't go near anything fermented, they couldn't go near anything dead, and and they couldn't have their hair cut. It was a symbol of their radical devotion to the Lord, constant devotion to the Lord. He would be God's man, she's saying. And he'll live in the temple. When she says, I'll give him to the Lord, or later on she'll say, I lent him to the Lord. That's not just symbolism. That's not just a spiritual talk. Sometimes a passage like this is read at a child dedication at church. I've probably done it before. It does kind of fit in some ways, but in some ways it's very, very different. What Hannah was doing was not dedicating her child to the Lord like, Lord, we acknowledge he's yours or we want to do pretty good with him or something like that. She was saying, give me a son and I will give him away. To you and to your service. It's a broken yet fervent and bold God centered prayer. Fourthly, we see a, a dim witted priest. Something comical to lighten things up a little bit here. Chapter 1, verse 12 it says, She continued praying before the Lord, and Eli the priest observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved, and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. The descriptions of her emotion are so rich and many in this passage. Great vexation, anxiety, pouring out her heart. You can can picture it, right? She's crying, she's sitting there weeping, and she's mouthing words, but they're, they're not coming out. And Eli takes it to be drunkenness. He rebukes her. We find out a couple of chapters later that Eli is very old and it's possible that his eyesight was poor. But it could be worse than that. Some commentators wonder whether things are so bad in Israel at this time, spiritually speaking, that the high priest doesn't recognize fervent prayer when he sees it. It's been so long since anyone showed up to the tabernacle and wept and prayed fervently and with great vexation. He doesn't know what to do with it. It could be that. It could be like Acts 2. What are you guys doing? You you look like you're drunk. And they say, we're not drunk. It's only 2 p.m. Come on. Well, Hannah weeps. And Eli thinks it's drunkenness. Of course, she explains herself and the, the misunderstanding is cleared up. That turns fifthly to a comforting assurance. We get a comforting assurance right after that. Eli answered, verse 17, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. It may sound like Eli answered her prayer on God's behalf, It may sound like Eli had some insight into God's plan, God's mind, and he said, he's heard you, and he'll answer you. It's a yes. But I don't think it's that. More likely, Eli just blesses Hannah here. He just bids her well here. He merely states, the God of Israel grant your request. It's probably like a may. May the God of Israel grant your request, not like a, Has The God of Israel has granted your request. That means then that Hannah leaves there not with a clear answer. Simply with the encouragement God has heard. He has heard. Be at peace. Blessings upon you. And that's enough for her to go back, no longer sad, eating and rising in the morning for worship. That should be enough for us. The Lord hears. The Lord is in control. The Lord is good and wise in all his ways. He will do what is right. Let us assure ourselves not with the confidence that he'll give us that or take away that, but that he hears and he's near and he's good and in control. And yet, we know what happens. She does get the affirmative answer to prayer. Sixthly, we see a son miraculously given. A son miraculously given. Verse 19 and 20. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, she conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. So not long after this Shiloh trip, the answer from God is clear. He remembered her and he gave her a son. And she names him Samuel, which means ask. Because he's the answer. Ask, answer. She asked of him. And this isn't a, a pattern or a promise that everyone can bank on. Answered prayer is a wonderful thing. We pray for what God has promised, and we also pray for other things. We can be confident that He'll answer these things that He's promised in His timing, in His way. We can't always be sure He will do this or that, even though we pray, and even though we're sincere, or even though we're persistent. Hannah is a marvelous example of faithful, persistent prayer. A marvelous example of knowing that the Lord is there and that he cares. Marvelous example of what to do with your burdens and brokenness. You take them to the Lord. And yet, she gets an answer. We sometimes don't. She gets an answer not just because she prayed. Not just because it's good to have a son. Or good to have kids. God's doing something. We'll only understand the importance of this son, Samuel, as we go on in the book. In future chapters, we'll see it. Throughout the rest of the book, Samuel is, is part of the picture. He dies a few chapters short of the end of 1 Samuel. All the way through, though, he's, he's pivotal in God's plan at this pivotal time. It's a son miraculously given. Just like so many other sons before, Bear and mom... A son needed for a needy time, a time such as this. As for Hannah, we see, seventhly, a vow steadfastly kept. Her vow was steadfastly kept. It takes a while here in the text. Verses 21 to 28 describe this for us. Let's read it all together. It says, The man Elkanah in all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice, like they've done before, to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she'd weaned him, she took him up with her along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, "'Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed,' And the Lord has granted to me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Can you imagine? I can imagine making the vow at a desperate time to say, Lord, give it to me. Give it right back. It would be much tougher to follow through on that vow. It seems like it would have been easy for Hannah to forget the vow or to simply pass it off as speaking too rashly. Oh, surely the Lord knows. I I was desperate and I overspoke a bit. He understands. It's okay. Maybe spiritualize the whole thing, saying to her husband, I feel like the Lord told me right now that it's okay for him to just stay. I feel like that okay. I feel like the Lord told me he should just stay here. You could imagine her wanting to renegotiate and think oh i 'll do it eventually, but when he 's eighteen, how about then or, or rationalize it and, and think i 'm not sure I can make that decision for him. Maybe we should wait till he 's an adult and let him decide for himself what he wants to do. These are all the things that i 'd be tempted to 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 think about, so I could fudge on the vow. But she only waits for him to be weaned. This is probably three to four years in their culture, in their time. Three to four years before a child was weaned. Which doesn't make giving him away any easier. Whether it's three months or three to four years or something, giving a child up seems heart-ripping. When the child is three or four, whatever, he's brought to the tabernacle and she leaves him there in Eli's care. She goes home. Sometime either before she leaves or after she gets home, perhaps she even wrote this before she even arrived, but whatever, we see now an eighth thing, a grand prayer. She prays, she prays. A grand prayer. Watch for, as we turn to chapter 2 now, now, watch for what seems to be surprising about this prayer, especially this prayer for this occasion. Chapter 2, verse 1. Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. There is no more, Oh, sorry, talk no more, as she turns now to the wicked. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren was born seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth of the Lord's. And on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. And exalt the power of his Anointed. Well, that seems awful grand, if not unusual, as a response to this answered prayer and the birth of the son and the dedication of giving him to the tabernacle's work. There are some themes in here that we should notice. One, notice this surprising theme of a great reversal that's coming. The godly humble are going to be exalted. And the lofty proud are going to be made low. There's a great upheaval coming to this world. Hannah's part of that godly low that will be exalted. It's a theme throughout 1 Samuel. God is taking down the high ones and he's raising up the low ones. We also see another theme that's unusual or surprising. And that's a full and final defeat of God's enemies. It doesn't seem to make any sense. Samuel's born. Yes, he's an answer to prayer. She gives him to the temple. The temple's work. And then she prays about God destroying all his enemies. Don't forget the problem in Israel in those days, in part, was that the nations surrounded them and they were constantly at war. Peace on all sides, that promise had not yet come. God's enemies were real and living and visible. They had names and they were against God's people. And yet it's not just a, a promise of the defeat of them, a few small neighboring nations, but something global. You see in verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord should be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Another theme that's just way too big, it seems, for the circumstances at hand, that in connection with this global judgment, there's a king. The second half of verse 10 says he will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. In these days, there was no king. He will exalt his king. He will give power to his anointed. What does this massive stuff have to do with Hannah's barrenness and and Samuel's birth? Well, we're not even fully sure how this happens, but somehow Hannah has the faith or the insight to see that this birth in this moment is marking something special? It's not just an answer to her prayer. It's not just the birth of her son. God was beginning something big, once again. He was gearing up for another phase of his plan. We know this because of what happens in First and Second Samuel and the chapters that follow, and we'll see it week in and week out. Weeks in the weeks ahead we know this to be true as well because Hannah's song, that's what it is it's a prayer song it's a reverberating one it's a reverberating one, that's the last point, a reverberating song First Samuel begins with a prayer or a song, Hannah's we looked at it today Second Samuel ends with another prayer song by David remember we shouldn't think of 1st and 2nd Samuel as two separate books that's only in the English Bible in the Hebrew uh, it was one Bible so think of beginning and end they have these prayer songs 2nd Samuel 22 and 23 if you want to go read that later today I'd encourage you to do you'd see there that the same themes are repeated a great upheaval is coming God's lifting up he's casting down He's destroying the wicked. And God's king, his anointed, is at the center of it, and he will be exalted and he will be strong because God is with him. Both Psalms or songs have those, giving us a bookend for the book and telling us what the whole book is about. It's about the coming of the king, the destruction of God's enemies, and the reversal, the up and the down of God's ways in salvation and judgment. Now remember back when we saw that this book began against a, a dark backdrop. There, Hannah's barrenness and there's spiritual barrenness in the nation. There's wicked priests around. and you know, you got one family and, and they seemingly have no significance. Those first three verses. There's one hint in those first three verses of First Samuel 1 that something good is afoot. It's this one word, that they're Ephrathites. Huh? Ephrathites, huh? You go, no, no what? How is that so significant? Why is that a, a good thing? Well, these are folks from Ephrathah, which is also called Bethlehem. Bethlehem. These are folks from Bethlehem. There's going to be another one coming down the line later on in this story who's also from Bethlehem. David, the king. And three centuries later, the prophet Micah will write this. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, You who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. And 700 years after Micah wrote that, another king was born in Bethlehem. Jesus. And he's the king. After his birth, just like Hannah, his mother Mary prayed. She sang a song to the Lord recorded in Luke 1. And in that song, she looked back to and freely quoted from Hannah's. So, it wasn't because she couldn't think of any good words. I don't know to pray. I want to have a good prayer about Hannah back here. I'll use Hannah's prayer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 no. What Hannah saw in seedling form in, in the child Samuel before her eyes, that seedling form was now full blossom before Mary's eyes as she looked at the baby Jesus. It's God's work from a womb to the whole world. Jesus is not just King of Israel. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's not just a mighty ruler or the eternal ruler. He's also a perfect sacrifice. He's our righteousness. He's our salvation. He died in our place upon the cross to bear our punishment, to give us his righteousness that we might be reconciled to the Father. We receive that as a gift simply through faith, simply by believing, not by earning it, working for it, trying to get there. we, We simply receive it by believing it and calling out for it. Are you in this story? You are. You're in this story. Are you those whom the Lord will throw down? The Lord will one day destroy. The Lord will come in righteous judgment and he will crush those who didn't see their need for him, they weren't desperate. Step one in a spiritual pursuit that ends with Christ and salvation in heaven, step one is to see your soul as barren. Your soul is dead on the inside. No hope. You must call out to God, and He must just give life. He must just produce a miracle. Christian, in 1 Samuel... In those days, there were dark days before Samuel was born. It just all seemed hopeless. And then you have little old Hannah, God beginning a new thing from the countryside people. Yet conditions were perfect. Conditions were perfect for him to act. He loves to show up, and he loves to show off. He loves to show up when things look the bleakest and darkest. Back then, Aslan was on the move. Remember that line from Narnia? Imagine if Hannah was able to read Narnia back in her day. She might have said it of her own day, not just of the time of Jesus. She might have said, Aslan's on the move. Big things are coming. He's at work. He's awake. He roars. Still today, we say, Aslan is on the move. And that's why we do silly, radical things according to the world. Like like a family moving to North Africa for the sake of the gospel. Like looking silly in front of our friends. Like giving up a big chunk of our paycheck to fund this stuff. Ministry and the gospel going forth in the world. That's why. Aslan's on the move. He still is. And who knows what he'll do next? Who knows what he'll do next? That's just our God. I mean, we we have much of it laid out for us, but, but who knows what he'll do, what he'll do next? And yet we do have much of it laid out for us, so there's some things we can expect. I asked the beginning, what can we expect? Expect of God, expect of his plan, expect for us if we're Christians. Here it is. If you're a Christian, you can expect that he will always do better for you than you know to ask. He will do better for you than you know to ask. We can expect that God will keep glorifying his name to the very end, to the ends of the earth, in all things, when it looks the bleakest. We can expect that he will uphold all of his promises However small they move along, whether an inch or a mile, today or tomorrow, we know he will bring all of his promises to their zenith. We know that none of his plans or purposes will be thwarted, not by you, not by me, not by the devil. We can expect that he will uphold us. He will keep us. He'll preserve us. In the end, we get him. In the end, we get heaven. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. We can expect that he'll hear us when we pray until then. We can expect that he sees, that he knows, that he cares, that he knows our struggles intimately, and he he has compassion. David will later write, You hold my tears in a bottle. He cares about our tears. We can expect dark days, some darker than others. We can expect that. But we can expect that he's working in hundreds and thousands of ways that we can't see. Such was the case in Hannah's day. Is he going to do anything? Is it all dead? And then a baby was born we can expect that God will continue to work in the seemingly ordinary and the seemingly weak he loves to. He's proven it again and again. That's our God, the God of Hannah, the God of David, the God of Mary. He's our God, the one who brings life from death, the God who can do whatever he wants to. Let's pray to him. Father, we say with David, how marvelous are your works, O God. We say that you are good and wise and sovereign. Not just then, not just in the future, but now. We pray as Christians, Lord, you'd help us to trust you. We pray you'd be a rock and a refuge to us ever more so. We pray our eyes would be on you. We pray we would pray like Hannah did, both in chapter 1 And in chapter 2, we pray our hope and affection and love would be set on Jesus, the true and only eternal and righteous King, who amazingly laid down his life for his rebellious servants, that we might eat at the table with him and we might be reconciled. Father, we thank you for your grace. By Jesus, through your Spirit, shown to us in your word. We celebrate it today in faith and praise you. Amen.